Welcome to Conversation Mill. Join me as I talk to individuals stepping out to pursue their passions, from small business owners to community leaders, and learn with me how we can work together to support our local communities and local economies. Visit conversationmill.com to learn more, but now please join us in conversation. Deb Richardson Moore is the author of four fiction titles and a memoir, The Weight of Mercy, about her early years as a pastor at the Triune Mercy Center in Greenville, South Carolina. She is a former national award-winning reporter for the Greenville News, and she joins us today to share the challenges that come with extending mercy, but also the hope to be found there. We discuss the state of journalism and her latest novel. I first encountered Deb's memoir, The Weight of Mercy, when reading it for a local LGBT book club. I was moved by her ability to tell the truth in a way that reveals the underbelly of things, while leaving you with a sense of possibility for the future, if we can unlearn averting our eyes from what scares us. I hope, like me, you walk away from our conversation inspired to reach outside of your comfort zone and with a better understanding of some of the issues facing our often forgotten citizens. Join me now in conversation with Deb Richardson Moore. Really want to start off talking about your journalism career. Okay. So you were a journalist here in Greenville, and we're seeing a lot of journalists leave or be removed from publications of note. I think one of the big ones in the last couple of years was Barry Weiss leaving Mm -hmm. the New York Times. And we're really seeing the landscape of journalism change. Are you seeing that? And what's your opinion of journalism in the current state it's in? Well, yeah, my experience with journalism, and I always had trouble making people believe this, but Fairness and accuracy were daily conversations we had in the newsroom. And even back then, this was, and I'm talking in the uh, 80s, 90s, and early aughts, um, you know, people always said, oh, the newspaper leans this way or leans that way. Nothing could have been further from the truth. We Those were, were very, on almost... Not every story, because every story doesn't lend itself to that. But the big stories, we would always ask, are we seeing all sides? Are Mm -hmm. we, you know, and I do believe just from observation, because I'm not on the inside anymore, but that seems to have been lost Uh with the rise of Fox News and all those, well, conservative outlets. And then I think followed by by some on the left. And so, no, I, um, I don't think that it's the same game anymore and it's very frightening who led that charge in your newsroom to say are we seeing this from all sides or did it seem very collective or was was there somebody that said hey let's sit down are we seeing this from all no it was very collective that was just ingrained in our editors and it you know we we better be thinking about that or our story wasn't going to run gotcha Mm -hmm. and what beat were you on, so to speak, at the Greenville News? Greenville News, um, every beat you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I I started out as a feature writer. Um, I did that for most of the time. I did covered arts a whole lot, uh, a very long time. Theater reviewer, you know, go to a local place and doing the reviews late at night. 
Um, and then I moved to City Desk for a while, did stories on murders and, um, you know, anything you can imagine, and then ended with the religion beat. And that's what led me into seminary because I started seminary just to learn more about my beat. Oh, and, wow. And then changed. And how long were you there at the Greenville News? 27 years. And so you were on the religion beat and then joined seminary. So tell us a little bit about that process, because that's quite a commitment to, oh, I want to learn more about what I'm writing about to go all the way to seminary. Well, but I I would do that every time I changed beats. When I took on the arts beat, I went over to the art museum and took some classes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always believed in brushing up on, on your new beat. And really, that was all I was doing. What I wanted, my idea was to learn more about comparative religion, Islam, Hinduism, yeah. all the, the the things I didn't know about. I'd been raised in a Christian church. And so I couldn't find that. Uh, Furman didn't have a comparative religion master's degree. Neither did Clemson. And so I ended up at uh, Erskine Seminary quite by accident uh-huh. <laughs> and then got down there and was just mesmerized by that biblical history yeah. and all of that. And so ended up with a Master of Divinity. Again, it's one thing to go now get that to learn more about what you're doing, but then you went and you used that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you didn't stay. Now, was it, were you pushed out of your journalism career and went, or did you make a conscious choice? I'm going to go pastor a church. Oh, no, no. As a matter of fact, um, they were beginning layoffs. Uh, we had been bought out by Gannett. And yes, there, but they were just in the beginning. So I did not get pushed out. Um, However, I probably would have uh, in the ne- over the course of the next eight years or right. so because, um, boy, that's which is what they were doing, and they downsized and downsized and downsized. But I did get out on the front end of that. Okay. And, uh, so, yeah, as a matter of fact, the publisher years later um, had given us a grant at Triune, and um, he said, uh, I've... He said, he said, I've been telling people around town that we helped you start Triune or get Triune going. I hope I'm saying the right thing. And I said, you absolutely are, because the Greenville News paid a little bit of my tuition oh, early on. Okay. So. Oh, that's mm-hmm. so interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, you wrote a memoir about your time at Triune Mercy Center. Give our listeners a little bit of understanding or a little bit of background on what taking on that pastorate meant? Oh, it was Wild West. Um, And I always admit that had I known what I was going to, I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. Mm. It was filled with drug addicts and um, some some violent criminals and um, a staff who was on addicted. Mm. (laughs) And so, so when I got there, it was pretty much operating as a giant soup kitchen. And, you know, they had an armed guard at, at dinner, at Sunday dinner, because it was an armed police officer. I mean, Mm -hmm. because it was kind of, you know, just wild. So you learn in seminary not to make any changes when you first go into a church to, Mm -hmm. to just look around for six months. And I fully intended to do that. But when I got there, it was so dysfunctional. I just said, there's no way we can wait six months. And I looked out over the the people coming in to eat with us and i saw it was very heavily uh addicts and alcoholics and i and i couldn't help but think 
why are we treating addiction with food mm-hmm. and clothes? There was a clothes closet and kerosene. There was kerosene giveaway. I said, why aren't we treating addiction? So that was where we started. And that was kind of a big elephant to bite into because, uh, you know, as you, you well know, you yeah. know, drug addiction and alcoholism is a huge bear. And um, it, we could have started with mental health. I did not understand what I was looking at with the mental illnesses and the mental disabilities as much. Addiction was a little clearer. Sure. So that's where we started. So that's what the book talks about primarily is those early, those first three years of trying just to start things. And we failed right and left. We fell on our face all the time. But some things worked. Some people got clean and sober. Some, a lot of people began wanting to volunteer there with us, both, both homeless people and visitors. And it just became this very uh, intergenerational and non-denominational, interracial, joyous place. Now, what's the history of Triune? When it was established in Greenville, was it established in that community with that purpose? or no, was it? no, no. Okay. No, it was a typical um, Methodist church that had been started in 1900, and um, that they, you know, it had at one point it had 700 members and served those communities around there. Mm-hmm. And as those communities began to change, Poe Mill, you know, the uh, just a lot of changes went on, and then the state highway department came through and changed the roads. And so sort of took a lot of its land. And uh, in 2003, the um, United Methodist had closed it down as a Methodist church and handed it over to Buncombe Street to administer as a non-denominational mission church. Okay. And so that was, when I came in 2005, that was what was going on. And it was this mission church with this outreach to the homeless um, and so what we did at that point, there were probably about 30 people coming to worship, 30 or 40 on Sunday mornings. But then the bulk of the energy went into running that operation of food and food bank and clothing and all yes. that. And so I was trying to reclaim the church because that was where my training was. And that's what was lost. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and built the church back up. Now, to back up a little bit, um, early in the book... You share that you had a meeting with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of South Carolina mm-hmm. to help in your job search, mm-hmm. um, which resulted in being told that most women's resumes were thrown in the trash. <laughs> right, right. Uh. What went through your head in that moment, in the rest of that meeting, I'm sure, and when you left that office, were you like, I did this under the wrong denomination or I'm in the wrong profession or where, what is my calling now? What, yeah. what were your thoughts? My thoughts was that? you idiot. Why didn't you become a Methodist or a Presbyterian back in seminary? <laughs> because that would have solved everything yeah. because both of those denominations at PCUSA were very open to women in ministry. And as a Baptist, not many Baptist churches were. Now, some were, and that was my problem. I had been at a very open-minded First Baptist Greenville for, for during that process. They had some women pastors, mm-hmm. but that was only one church. 
and they didn't have an opening. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. So was that a challenge when you got into Triune Mercy coming in as a female pastor to that environment as well? Actually, it wasn't because they had had, as a Methodist church, they had had the previous three ministers had been women. Okay. And so that really wasn't part of it. Now, our homeless men, they a lot of them would say, I've never had a woman pastor before. I've never even seen a woman pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like, they'd shrug and they'd be like, okay. <laughs> so, but no, there was some of that. And we, mm-hmm. we, we did, some people would come in, take one look, turn around and leave. Um, one of my favorite parts of this book, because it's one of my favorite things about reading is when you come across a line that you can feel whether it's a piece of dialogue or just a, you know, a sentence of truth, just that like nugget that jumps out, um, at you. And I want to read this off my notes so that I, that I get it right. Um, and, and there's several of these in your book, but this one I was drawn to specifically, you're telling a couple that they have to wait another month before they can come back and get more. Um, I think it was close and this, uh, character, this woman, Kylie yells at you, I'm coming to church on Sunday. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to get you fired. And your follow-up line to that is, I took a moment to relish the idea. (laughs) And I just love that because it's such a real, true moment. Like having now met you um, several times, but then also just your voice in the book, you can tell that that line I took a moment to relish the idea is real and really what you were thinking. Um, And I'm sure we all can relate to those end of the rope moments. Mm -hmm. Um, When you were in these moments, were you like, I got to write this stuff down? I got to start a memoir? No, no, I wasn't thinking that. What I was thinking was I would give anything to get out of here, but I don't want to be a quitter. And so if they fired me, that would solve everything. Yep. And so I don't know, you're you're too young to know this, but I would say probably every mother of young children in the world has thought at some point, I just wish I had a broken leg and could go in the hospital and rest. <laughs> and it's sort of like that. You know, you, you know, you know in your best mind that that's crazy and that that's not gonna solve anything in it. But but that in the moment. You're just thinking, I just, God, can I just rest? And that was what I was thinking. If I could just get out of here with, with it being no fault of my own. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's. And how did you cope with that? I think we, you know, we expect your answer to be, you know, I got on my knees and I prayed and I made it through. But it's not always as easy as that because mm-hmm. the answer doesn't always come right now. Um, you know, you, someone doesn't stand up on Sunday and get you fired. So how, how did you cope through all those moments in the aftermath when you went home at night? Yeah, I got asked that question a lot and I sincerely, I think it's a couple of things. I think I had done, I had turned my family upside down Mm -hmm. to, you know, leaving the career in journalism. Um, I, we literally sold some stocks to pay for seminary and keep, you know, keep us going. We had kids in college. Mm-hmm. And so I had asked a lot of them to get to that point. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I'm failing. And so there was that, that I just, I needed to keep on, keep going. 
and secondly, was that what you had asked earlier, being a Baptist um, and knowing I wasn't going to get a job anywhere else? That was the big thing. It wasn't like, well, I'm just going to leave here and go get a job at the church across the street. I wasn't going to get another job. Mm. And not only that, theologically speaking, I didn't feel like I deserved another job. Mm. I honestly thought, if I can't learn to love these people and deal with this, where I, I did believe God had called me, I don't deserve an easier church. Wow. And what were the conversations you were having with other pastors in the community, in the community, whether it be, um, even outside of the Christian religion, were you having those conversations and like, was there a, a fellowship there? Not often. Um, that I developed that later, um, as, as Triune became more well known in the community and I would start visiting other churches. But, um, one of the early, some of the earliest, uh, uh, supporters were my own pastors from First Baptist Greenville, sure. and they got it. They because they would they would list, let me vent, mm-hmm. and and that's as you know that's very necessary. Yes. And um, my one of my pastors had said, uh, "Well, you you know you're pretty much entering a third world ministry," and that kind of hit home. It was like you know he's right. I don't speak the language of the streets. Mm-hmm. I do not know why people are behaving the way they are. I don't understand addiction. And so so looking at it from that standpoint, it was like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he's right. Before going to Triune, did you know that homelessness, drug addiction on this level existed in Greenville, Absolutely South Carolina? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, um, and I did not know that addiction and mental illness and mental disability drove so much of street homelessness. Mm. No idea. And so that was why when we started uh, meeting the people, we meant they would take me, you know, under their bridges and into their warehouses and into their campsites. And I thought, okay, if I, I was 51 at that point, if I'm 51 years old, I've been a reporter in this city all my life, and I didn't know this, I bet you other Greenvillians don't know this. And so we started the idea of Backyard Mission Days, and that was designed to take all of our church folks, you know, who I knew were good, well-intentioned folks, let's take them into these encampments, and let's show them how some of our fellow citizens are living and that, to me, was a huge seismic change in Greenville when all these people started be, started becoming conversant mm-hmm. with the idea of homelessness and what existed in Greenville. Was it just ignorance of we, we just don't know because we don't go into that part of town? Or was it we don't know because we're shutting our eyes to it. What did you see more of? Like, oh, we saw a homeless person, but we're just not even thinking about how bad it might be because... Oh, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer. One one of the sermons that I always um, uh, uh, took when I was visiting other churches was this idea of seeing that we had... we When we saw things, we didn't know what we were looking at. For example, mm. if we saw adults sitting up asleep at the at the library that that was a sure sign they were homeless mm-hmm. if we saw adults on the main streets of greenville with a backpack 
who weren't students at the the uh, governor's school. That was, Mm -hmm. uh, they were probably homeless. I hadn't known that before. If we saw cardboard beside a building or beside a bridge, that meant somebody had slept there the night before. So I did believe it was very possible for us to be optically impaired mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and simply not know. And that's what I was trying to share. And so as, as we went on, some of our homeless parishioners would welcome our, our visitors into their encampments. And t- they had all these questions, and they were very yeah. respectful questions. And our folks became the experts and they, it turned out, oddly enough, they loved doing that. And they would say, Pastor, and I would pay them by the, you know, to, to lead these tours. And because I was, I was trying very hard not to be manipulative or exploitive. Right. And so I would, I would pay them $10 an hour to do this. And they would inevitably come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, I'll lead another tour and you don't even have to pay me because they enjoyed being the experts. Yeah. It was very empowering. And so these people leading the tours were parishioners that were taking these tours, asking them questions like, how did you end up here? Absolutely. And they were answering and being Absolutely. honest about if it was an addiction problem or what What did you see there? Because I would imagine that's got to be, I, that might seem counterintuitive to people that someone might go, oh yeah, I have a drug problem and this is where I live now. Yeah. Some were very honest, totally honest. Some were not. And when the ones, when I knew good and well, something else was going on and they weren't acknowledging it, I wouldn't invite them to do it again because, gotcha. uh, because we had enough who were painfully honest. Mm-hmm. So you brought in and worked with a lot of people to bring in, um, mental health services, counseling mm-hmm. service, services, working to get people in rehab, um, sober groups, things like mm-hmm. that. Exactly. What was the first step to that, to turn turning Triune from kind of a giant yeah. soup kitchen, closed closet to a real place of rehabilitation? Right. The first, um, the first hire was uh, an English gentleman who had uh, worked, he had retired as an engineer from floor. Mm-hmm. Or early, like 55. And then he had done a year at Salvation Army, a year at Miracle Hill, a year at United Men. He just was hopping all around doing this kind of work. And I ran into him up the street, and he was working at uh, Gateway House, which is was for a, a clubhouse mm-hmm. model for mentally um, ill folks. And he was getting ready to leave there. And I told him, I said, I, I've just started this new job and I want to get, I want to give people a way to get clean and sober. Mm. And he said, well, I'll come work for you for a year and we'll, we'll try. And he did. He came over. He was my first hire as a rehab counselor. I guess we called it. We changed his title about 500 times, <laughs> but, um, he began visiting all the rehab centers in Georgia and Carolinas He'd go down and he would take them bribes <laughs> that we were getting, you know, like light bulbs and toilet paper. Uh-huh. So they knew him. And then when he had somebody ready for rehab, they would say, okay, yeah, sure. Bring them on in. Mm-hmm. And he would pack them in. And we learned he packed them in a car and drove them down because sometimes if you put them on a bus, they didn't make it. Yeah. So big learning curve. Wow. But he would, yeah. And so then we would learn to pack them a suitcase 
So they knew their church was behind them. So they had a, a suitcase full of clean clothes and full bottles of shampoo and razors and all that. And he would take them into these rehab places. So that's where we started. Um, before the prologue to your book, you share a verse from Matthew 23, 23. And that verse is, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. uh, For you tithe mint, dill, cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Why did you start your book with this verse? Because uh, it was a a sort of almost a play on words from the title, the weight of mercy. What I was trying to convey was the underbelly, the burden of extending mercy in this place that there was a lot when somebody said to me boy you sure shared a lot of bad stuff in that book and I said if I hadn't shared the bad stuff there wouldn't be a book Mm -hmm. and I think that's what you have to do and there was truly a weight to the mercy and so that verse kind of spoke to it Mm -hmm. that yeah tithing all this stuff is not the answer. The mm-hmm. answer is the weightier work, the dirty, messy, exhausting work of standing alongside, mm-hmm. of being with. How many years were you there at Tryon? Fifteen. Wow. Um, I'm a big believer in, and this is just partly for my own uh, mental health and not getting overwhelmed, but quality over quantity. And so whether that's spending time focusing on trying to be present in the moment um, versus I'll be with you all day, but I'm on my phone and I'm not really here. You were there 15 years. That's quite a few years in that environment. But did did you feel like you were able to give that quality over quantity? Yes. And, and that's exactly what we were shooting for. Like I said, when we came there, we were just doing meals, you know, shooting, you know, you had 180 people eating, but they were going to be hungry again in four or five hours, you know it? So what yeah. were you accomplishing? And so that, and, and, so, and we would have churches visit us as we got going and, and people started learning about us all over the country would come in. We had, I had somebody from Kansas come in one time for Pete's sake, and they would come in and say, what would you say is the first thing if our church could just do one thing, because what do churches want to do? They want to start serving a meal. Yeah. They want to open a clothes closet. And I said, do not do that. Don't just scatter shot, hire a social worker. Go. It's better to go deep with five people mm-hmm. than to just scatter your efforts with a hundred. Mm-hmm. And I believe entirely in what you're saying. That quality time with those social workers changed more lives than certainly than talking to me did. And because those, those social workers had the time and the energy and the patience just to keep addressing those issues over and over and over until some change resulted. I think your book's important for so many reasons and and you having the ability to go out and be on podcasts like this and, and tell these stories because We like to, and I'm saying we as the collective, maybe Americans, we like to do the easy thing and it's easy to hand out food or it's easy to hand out a jacket. It's hard to see someone in addiction or with mental health 
and sit with them. It's hard to maybe even be honest with them if they're in your own family and say, you need help because you don't want that conflict. What advice do you have for getting past that hard, that first hard wall? Oh yeah. Now that, that's an excellent question. I think people see someone on the street and they just, th- you know, when we have had a lot of volunteers who have come to us and said, man, I started out trying to help this guy and now I've been working with him for two years and we're no, he's no better off than when I started. What, what do I do? And so I do understand that, that frustration, that fear, even what I have found to be more effective is to come in to an agency or church where, who you feel is doing good work, not necessarily triune, certainly can be triune, United Ministries, Salvation Army, Miracle Hill. We've got lots in Greenville. And come alongside and volunteer with them. And almost all of them have areas where you can safely come in and volunteer and build those important relationships. I can't tell you how many volunteers I had doing exactly what you say said, mm-hmm. you know, it, just building long-term relationships with one or two people, mm-hmm. but they were safe. They were doing it in the art room or they were right. doing it in the, in the, the dining hall. And then it got to the point where, okay, I'll take you to the doctor or, okay, let's go see a ball game together or, you know, and that they grew and, and developed into authentic relationships. That's great advice. Cause I, and it seems so simple to, yeah, go to one of these organizations and start inside their four walls yes, yes. and get out of your comfort zone and build up that trust with them, with you and you with them. Exactly. Because it has to go both yeah. ways as well. Yeah. And they can also advise you on this person may not be being honest with you mm-hmm. because that's a big part of it. I did not like that part of it, having to play detective because I wanted to be the pastor but boy, did I get lied to a lot. And mm-hmm. that is a part of it. And you've got to be cognizant and ready for that. Yeah. You tell several stories in the book of, of people lying right oh, God. to your face. I mean, that, <laughs> that has to be maddening. I mean, you're, you are a mom, so I'm sure you went through stages like that with your kids, but they grow out of it. Right. <laughs> right and now right. you're right back into uh-huh. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that had to be challenging. Yeah. And it's funny you bring that up because I always said that I thought my best training was not journalism, not seminary, but parenting. Uh That I I learned more from being a parent to my three shenanigan makers (laughs) than I did in any, in anything else. There were a lot of parallels. Wow. Um, Triune is a very inclusive church and under your leadership remained a very inclusive church. Um, you tell a story in the book about uh, a former pastor that came to the church leaving because you had a gay person participating Mm -hmm. in the service, I believe leading the worship. Tell us a little bit about those challenges, but also why your church was so inclusive and why you came alongside the LGBT community. Well, I guess just even in, even back in seminary, I remember uh, doing several research papers on LGBTQ uh, theology because I just, in my heart of hearts, I felt like, why in the world would people think God loved 
LGBTQ people any less than anyone else. He created them. He knew what they, you know, what what they were, just like, you know, he knew I was a heterosexual female. That made no difference to God, and I shouldn't even be using a male pronoun, but I, I do that just for ease. And so I always had just on a gut level felt that. And so as, and I, as I studied the Gospels more and I talked to my professors, I came to believe that it, it just totally. And, I, and it, it really kind of surprises me that more churches aren't there, quite mm-hmm. honestly, because, you know, we all have these members in our families and our friend sets. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just have always thought it was ridiculous to make that distinction. What was the theology? Cause I'm sure people that are listening are wondering whether they're, they identify as, as a Christian or uh, is some other you know religion or just maybe don't have any, uh, religious upbringing. What theology were you looking to, to go? I don't see why we wouldn't be embracing LGBT people in our churches. Uh, there are uh, some passages in Romans where Paul writes about, and, and it's in the thing is, is our translations. I don't believe it was his intention in the original Greek, but it's the way things have been translated. And there are only about seven mentions of it, period. And some of it are Old Testament Leviticus that you don't lie with a man or woman in the, in the same verse that you don't wear two kinds of uh, fabric in your shirt. So clearly a lot of that we've thrown out the window. You don't eat shellfish, you know, right. that. So, so some of it, I think, you know, you can safely dismiss like that. Some of the more problematic are in the book of Romans and reading a lot of LGBT theologians. I just came to believe we have mistranslated and misinterpreted mm. and that, that was that, that Paul had no knowledge of consenting adult homosexuality. What he was referring to was men and boys probably in Roman uh, society. And we, as we would object to that. Which be, makes sense with the history of the time as well. Right. We know from that, right. secular sources. Exactly. It's more, exactly. It's more pedophilia that he was um resisting not not consenting you know because they really sort of had no no concept of that in in that era so so yeah so that was it and so um i freely you know just made sure we were very welcoming um but but yeah but that would there, there was a clearing out process as people heard me more and more from the pulpit saying that some people left yeah, mm-hmm. including that that pastor who you referenced. He was our had come into his song leader for a while. Wow. Um, well, I think I can say thank you on behalf of a lot of people <laughs> in the LGBT community uh, in Greenville, because that's that's rare in this area, um, and and in the Christian church in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, I uh First Baptist has really been oh, yeah. a leader in the community with that, having things like the gay men's chorus and absolutely um, being supportive mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. LGBT community. Well, see, and that was kind of where because I had been in that church for quite a while, and you know, they were as accepting. Yeah. And, and so yeah, that's you know, that that's where you know, when you when you're in a church and it's accepting for a while, that's what you learn. So, mm-hmm. 
when you transitioned out of um, being the pastor at Triune Mercy, what was your next uh, kind of adventure? What was the next challenge you undertook? Oh, well, that's only been two years ago. Okay. And so I have um, very much been enjoying my retirement. I've continued writing because I'd started writing um, back in 2012. So I had written, published five books while I was still... Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. pastor there. And that and my, my board of directors was super supportive. And they gave me three sabbaticals during my time because they believed in my writing. And so they would give me these sabbaticals of six to nine weeks to finish up a book. Oh, okay. And so three Great. different times I did that. And then the other two books I just wrote when I was working full time, which was kind of a challenge. So, so I've just been doing more of that and I've been traveling a good bit. Leaving that behind, what is the feeling coming out of that 15 years of, I mean, that's intense, Mm -hmm. mental, emotional struggle. And I don't mean to sound overly dramatic, but every day there's something new in that environment. Um, And then it's kind of coming out of that. And I imagine it sort of as walking out of a rock concert and then it's silent in the parking lot (laughs) and sort of that ringing Uh, you have in your ears and like, now what? Kind of still riding the high of it, but now you're on the other side of it. What was that transition like? Yeah, there, there was a little bit of that. But what you have to realize is by the time I left, we had a full staff. I had social workers. I had an associate director who ran operations for me. Um, And all those you built during your time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We had rehab managers. We had uh, a medical team from Bon Secours in there. Well, until COVID. COVID kind of, you know, really knocked the legs out of us for a Mm -hmm. lot of things. But but it had become not a place where I was... Even though, yes, I was seeing homelessness and I was certainly a lot of hurt always walked through our door, but it was also a place of unimaginable joy. Mm. And it's hard for people to understand that, Mm -hmm. but it truly was. And the staff, we would always laugh Mm -hmm. because some of the things you just had to, you know, and just the, the, the crazy things that would happen. And, 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 and I guess there was also the joy of knowing you were making a difference and you were doing the best you could. And did everybody's life turn out the way you wanted? No, no. But that you were in there trying. Yeah. And and you had these colleagues who were trying. And it was just, oh, by the time I left, I honestly thought it was the best ministerial job in Greenville. Wow. I really did. And so, so yeah, I miss the people. That's That's yeah. been the, the main thing. Um, but I, I have enjoyed not having that mental to-do list every day, uh-huh. which I never, I never got away from. It was, you know, that, that constant, yeah. have, I, have I gotten to this? Have I gotten to that? Mm-hmm. Let's pivot to talk about your mystery novels. I recently just read The Cantaloupe Thief, okay. which mm-hmm. I loved. I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I've read everything she's ever wrote. Uh-huh. So I really enjoy a good mystery. Uh-huh. And... I don't know spoiler alerts, but I thought it was a 
very twisty mystery. Thank you. Um, Thank you. That I very much enjoyed. And like when I got to those last 20 pages, I was like staying up late. (laughs) (laughs) We got to get to the end of this. Where did your, your motivation to write mystery novels come from? Same as you, Agatha Christie. I read everything she ever wrote, every Nancy Drew, you Mm -hmm. know, so that was in the back of my mind. That's always what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be a mystery writer. So after I wrote the memoir, and it was published in uh, by, by a house in England. They came to me and said, could you write a sequel? And I said, I think I said everything I needed to say in that book, but I've always wanted to write murder mysteries. And they said, oh, well, we're just starting a fiction line. We'll be glad to take a look at it. So my idea was to write a fiction that addressed some of those issues of homelessness. Mm. Because I felt, again, a lot of people had not had contact with that. They didn't know, you know, and we don't have a whole lot of that in our literature, you know, homeless characters. No. And so I I took that idea that a homeless man had once said to me, Pastor, do you know the worst thing about being homeless? It's not being cold or wet or hungry. The worst thing about being homeless is being looked right through. And so that's what I hung it on. A homeless man who is invisible because people are just disregarding him, ignoring him, sees and hears things in this community that others might not. And so those first three mysteries are built on that. Um, that, that Malachi, that's his name. He lives in a homeless encampment and he helps this newspaper reporter, Brannigan, because he's seeing and hearing things that nobody in the middle class is going to hear. And you have how many in that series? Three Three. mysteries in Uh that series. Uh And then what are your other two novels? Because I think you said five, right? No, five books in total. Five books in total. Okay, so Way to Mercy is one. Yep, the -hmm. three mysteries and then Mm -hmm. one more. Yeah, and that last one is called Murder Forgotten, and it was just pure fun. I was trying to break away from a homeless Brannigan and homelessness and just say, okay, let's just do something fun. So it's set down at the beach in Sullivan's Island. Okay. And it's a famous mystery writer who is known worldwide. She's very, very well known, but she's losing her memory. Mm. And what does that mean for this mystery writing? And so then her husband is murdered in their beach house. Oh. And she is just panic-stricken because she fears that in the throes of her own plotting and confusion, she might have killed him. And so that's the setup. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Well, then that one's out right now. Oh, yeah. It came out out in 2020. 2020. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And then are you working on anything new? Yeah, I finished one, but my publisher is uh having is restructuring and not taking any manuscripts. So I've been trying I'm trying to interest other publishers in it, but we'll see. But it's it's set in a gentrifying neighborhood where there not is not Brannigan, but it's a a, a place where $800,000 homes are going up next to boarding houses mm. and next to woods where homeless people are living. So when a double murder erupts, the police don't know if it was personal or if it was the result of all those tensions uh, that are taking place in that neighborhood. Which is so timely with what we're experiencing, not only in Greenville, 
but in mid-sized towns and cities across the U.S. right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a way of addressing some of those concerns in what I hope is a page-turning format. Yeah. What um, advice would you give to young writers or or a new writer, maybe somebody like you who has had a career and is now sitting down because they've had a passion to write and never done it? What What was the first step you took? Run for your life. That would be my, I'm telling you, it is a soul crushing endeavor. Mm. And I, I would, I guess I, my advice would be do not try to make a living at it, even though I yeah, put that living in quotes. Um, it is very, very, very difficult unless you're a John Grisham or a Nicholas Sparks or a Jody Picoult to honestly make an income mm-hmm. out of it. I think I make about two cents an hour, you know, sure. for, um, for any work I've done. It's, it's just, it is so very hard, you mm-hmm. know, in the, 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 the publishers, the, 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 the big five publishers you can't even get into without an agent. And, um, although there are a lot more small presses cropping up and that's been, that's been good but you um you be you have to be aware and able to do almost all of your own publicity right and i guess that was that surprised me i yeah. i thought book tours and you know your your publisher doing a lot of legwork for you that is almost non-existent and what did you do to promote yourself when you had these books coming out um Fortunately, at the time, I got and still get a lot of invitations to speak in Greenville. Sure. So a lot of book clubs, civic clubs, hospitals, you know, um, senior action, you know, just all kind of invitations to speak and then sell your books there. Mm. So at churches, even that. Um, So so there have been a lot of those kind of opportunities. And even now... I'm still getting like I'm speaking to a, let's say a nonprofit in October, and and that won't that probably won't be anything about my books. But anytime you know you're just out there, yeah, it you know it's it's kind of cross pollinates. Sure. And then I'm speaking at a writers conference in September, and so yeah, you, you just you just do what you can. Being mm-hmm. out there, being present, yeah. being involved, yeah, yeah. Um. What's what's next? More writing, enjoying retirement. What what do you think is your next? Yeah, path? both both. Um, you know, we've got a my husband and I have a bucket list of mm. of retirement trips, and uh, I'm heading out to Cuba in a few weeks oh, uh, with my younger daughter. That is on my list. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what an incredible place. Yeah, to be able to go visit. Just yeah, that just you know, I, I think we we know so little about it, you know, yeah. and it just right off our borders like that. So. So some of that, but no, I don't, I don't think I'll ever stop writing. Mm-hmm. Although it's very hard to get your energy up when you've got a book sitting there yeah. unsold. Yeah. It's hard to go ahead and start another one. Yeah. And how, if somebody, uh, do you still go do speaking engagements? If people reach out and say, hey, we have a church over here in oh, sure. Kansas and we're starting an outreach program, we'd love to have you come out. Do you do those kinds oh, of things? Oh, absolutely. I did, um, I did about seven guest preaching gigs this spring and summer okay. yeah so i'm doing a lot of that but yeah just if they go on my website they'll see get my email address and all of that yeah i'm very reachable 
And then kind of one of my last question is you've been in this Greenville community for a long time in, in different roles. How have you seen Greenville change its attitude towards uh, minorities in our community, homeless in our community. How have you seen the evolution of that in your time in Greenville? Oh, that that has been very positive. Um, there were a lot of us working together uh, in homeless service providers who were friends. Uh, Miracle Hill, Salvation Army, uh, Triune, um, uh, United Ministries. Uh, and so we, we began to realize this is crazy for us to, to be in silos. Mm -hmm. And we began, uh, during, during my time there of really branching out of meeting with each other, of meeting with churches, of meeting with philanthropists Mm -hmm. and all working together. And we actually came together and formed the Greenville homeless Alliance and hired two people who are looking at what Greenville needs every day regarding homelessness and housing and all that, not what Triune needs or what Salvation Army needs. And so I think there's been this huge awareness mm-hmm. and um, and people being willing to work together. You know, Mill Village Ministries over there, I believe yes. you've talked to Dan. We've yeah. been her in. Um, just all kinds of of things like that that are cropping up and 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 people being more aware and I, and I think that is very good for our community. And awareness really hopefully drives change, but Absolutely. knowing is one thing and then doing and mm-hmm. and having the community behind you mm-hmm. I think is I mean that's so critical. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it, and it's it's not easy. It's expensive work. United Housing Connections right now has been trying to get a project off the ground for several years called Church Street Place at Poe Mill. And it will house uh 36 formerly homeless people, probably addicted and or mentally ill and or physically disabled, you know, who aren't going to get housing any other way. Right. But, you know, it's just taking a long time to get that uh, you know, they've got the money, but just COVID really put a wrench in their supplies and getting ground broken and all that. Yeah. Where would you say, and we talked about it a little bit in the middle of the podcast, but for someone listening who wants to start creating change in their community now, um, when it falls kind of into this bucket of homelessness or drug addiction or drugs in their community, what would be your best advice of where to start? If you're first one step. Person? Um, I think maybe my first step would be to go to Susan McClarty at, she's the coordinator for the Greenville Homeless Alliance and just talk to her and she can point you, you know, to, if you want to work with that group, of course, that's mm-hmm. fine. But she can also tell you what some of the individual uh, different agencies do and which ones accept new ideas and volunteers because some of them are, just aren't set up to do much of volunteers because sure. they need more professionals. Right. Um, but there are a lot that do mm-hmm. and yeah. And just, just start exploring. I, I like that you brought up that professionals piece and not to go too far back, but you were bringing in professional counselors oh, yeah. and yeah. addiction specialists, um, which that's the, people go into these careers Obviously, they need to make money. They need to make a salary to support their families. Absolutely. Um, and I think we forget that sometimes when we support something like a triune from a financial perspective, how important that can be too 
to pay for these specialists to come in and be the resource. Cause that again, going back to that, it being a hard thing to jump into, you go, well, I'm not a counselor. I don't have any, you know, mental health counseling experience. How am I going to go in and help from a volunteer standpoint? But there, there are people who are, have the tools to do this. And so by financially supporting some of these organizations, doing these things, you're still making a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. And I always, um, uh, I made no apologies about that, about a huge percentage of our budget was to pay those salaries. And I was very upfront about that because I said the social worker, the rehab counselor, they're the ones who are going to make a difference in these people's lives, not the food pantry, Mm -hmm. not the clothes closet. Mm -hmm. And if you're okay with that, that, you know, we have to pay for these professional services. Yeah, we can take your money. Um, Another thing that we were a little different because we were a church, I always used to say, we weren't going to spend a lot of our time and energy on outcome measurement. That was the big buzzword during all my years. And, you know, people wanted outcome measurements for this grant and this grant. And I said, keep your money. If you have to see that, what we're doing is we are living out the gospel in the best way we know how by providing professional services and interaction. But I'm not going to make my employees spend half their time on paperwork. Right. We're just not going to do it. So if you can live with that and live with the trust in that we're doing the right thing, sure, we'll take your money. Mm-hmm. But if not, go fund somebody else. And so we were just very, and I think you have to be. I opened my books to anybody who wanted to look. They could see where the money was going. Mm-hmm. I remember Reed Layman saying one time, because you know they're, they're always looking at, well, how much goes to administration overhead? And I said, Reed, I kind of feel like, you know, about 90% of ours goes to salaries and overhead. And he goes, Deb, that's 90% of yours that's going to mission work. Yes. He said, because that's who your salaries are paying. Yes. And so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> if but, you could yeah. leave our listeners with um, just kind of one last piece of advice when getting into this kind of work, what would that be? Yeah, just make sure you surround yourselves with trustworthy people mm. because there are a lot of pop-up people who probably mean very well, but they just pop up and do a meal or pop up and run out and give away coats and shoes and all this. And I think they feel a lot better about themselves. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing is they're enabling addictions to go on longer. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how much of that, those coats and shoes end up in crack dealers houses. And so, uh, you know, try you now has a new minister, Jennifer Falshiorn, who is just excellent. And, um, you know, all of our, you know, uh, since I was there, actually, there probably been a lot of retirements (laughs) and, but, but a lot of those agencies are still so strong and so trustworthy and just surround yourself with people like that. Mm, Thank you. That's great Mm. advice. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences with us. We're actually going to sit and do, um, a couple more questions that'll be up on our Substack site. Um, so if you're listening, please go over there and subscribe and you can get, um, kind of our follow-up conversation with Deb. We're going to break away from some of these headier, weightier topics. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. You are most welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again to Deb Richardson Moore for joining us on Conversation Mill today. If you enjoyed this conversation, 
please visit us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can get an additional 30 minutes of conversation with Deb and myself, where we discuss conversations and what they mean to her, everything from meaningful conversations to how to have difficult conversations. I think you'll really enjoy this extended conversation Deb and I shared. If you are interested in having Deb as a guest speaker at your organization, you can contact her at debrichardsonmore.com. Her books can be purchased on Amazon or through her website. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.